I'm going to take this into like my own experience and dealing with these conversations often in the setting that I work in. I do think there's an important conversation about the, that end of and I think this is a good place to tell us. Mm-hmm. So, and so that, that fear factor that this, whatever this feeling is, is inescapable. And there is no way out except some very permanent solution. That is the way to escape whatever fear you have. And so we can sit here as 20, 30 year olds and say, like, we can look around and say, wow, this place is a fucking dumpster fire. (laughs) Right? I mean, like, like our lives, personally, on an an individual level, our lives, (laughs) our lives are pretty fucking good. We have the four of us have all really like done a lot of work Thankfully. to really shift our lives. But that but is But it's not still the case. a dumpster fire. You right. can still the, right. objectively right. look at everything and say this mm-hmm. place sucks. Yeah. This mm-hmm. sucks. Right. And that is not you know, the case for that. everybody either. Mm-hmm. And, and and so but on a in a global, very, very, very big wide lens view, it's a fucking dumpster fire. So you take this mm-hmm. fear aspect <clears throat> and you put that into somebody who has lived 70, 80, 90 years. And they're like, yeah, this place is a fucking dumpster fire and it's really not getting any better. Right. And now, now you have put me <laughs> into a controlled setting where I basically have no rights can't even take care of myself anymore. I can't, I have no free will. Can't stand up without getting yelled at. And then. Might even have an alarm that goes off when you stand up. We have these responses when these people say, I want to die. And like, Mm -hmm. I will say where I come from, when an 85 year old person says, I want to die. Holy fuck, the bells are ringing and everybody come running because we have to do something or talk to this person or make sure all the things are in place to make sure that this person doesn't actually want to die and that they don't actually want to kill themselves and that they don't have a plan to do that. When their life expectancy is like on average fucking two years. But on the flip side of that. I was just going to say though too, like who in that position wouldn't want to die? Exactly. Like, and so like, come on, have to sit <laughs> there in these meetings say. and say, like, how many yeah. staff members how, it, working there? I remember being like, if I have to do this one more time, I'm going to kill myself. And I, as a staff member, I'm allowed to say that. But if a resident says, if I have to sit through this care routine one more time, I'm going to fucking kill myself. <laughs> then like, get the psych meds out. We better sedate them within an inch of their lives so they can't move. And that's that, like, I feel like that's like the, where I feel like that's part of the piece where something like physician assisted suicide, medical assisted suicide, whatever, (coughs) however people phrase it. I feel like really in, 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 in scenarios like that would be such a compassionate thing to do for some people. Yeah. And because and, and if you look yeah. and if because if you look like 
what qual- what quality do some of these people have? Very little. Mm-hmm. But I think I think though too, it's a really slippery slope because, th- and this is this is where I get caught because let's let's not misconstrue either. I do feel very strongly that people in particular situations like that, you know, when you talk about dementia or Alzheimer's or very like intense physical just very physical illnesses. Like I, I personally, as somebody that's extremely empathetic, I don't feel like me sitting there on my high horse and telling somebody, no, you have to, you have to suffer till the end. (laughs) No, but (laughs) I do think that this conversation on medical assisted suicide is very slippery. And all you have to Mm -hmm. do is look at Canada right now because they actually have two cases going on currently where there's a girl that's 23 years old that wants to die. And the only reason is because she doesn't feel like living anymore. And now she wants to die. And she's already had one physician that signed off and said, yeah, sure, you can do that. And she's going through to try and find the second one. You also have another man that is in his mid-40s and has basically lost everything. And I very feel very strongly for this man as well, but has lost everything, but is in otherwise good physical health and has now been trying to find doctors to sign off on him killing himself because he's broke and he just doesn't want to be broke anymore. And he just wants to die. So I think it's a very, it's a, it's a very slippery slope when we think about this kind of stuff, because if we, if we legalize this whole concept of that as well, just don't get me started. But if we, if we legalize this, this idea of allowing people to end their lives through assistance on the medical spectrum, it then opens the floodgates for anybody else to say, I just don't feel like living. And then in that respect, that just muddies the waters even more so, I think. So I think if we're if we're going to go on a path of medically assisted suicide, I don't know if maybe it's a situation like, oh, you have to meet this specific amount of criteria and you have to have a terminal illness or you have to you know, be diagnosed with something that could be terminal or you, know, you have to present all of these different things because then otherwise it's going to turn into a situation like a you know, 13-year-old kid just doesn't want to live anymore and goes to people and says, I'm, I'm depressed, I don't want to be here anymore. Like Then at that point... Do you have to say yes? Um, yeah, I see. I see that slippery slope to that part of it. Yeah. I think, and I think, like from my perspective, like that part of it's really difficult. I think it's like I see it more from a chronic illness. You know, <laughs> like you're trapped in a box basically at this point. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. You know, and so like, why? And and I guess, I guess. For me, the question is like, why do we feel, I guess it's like that savior complex, right? Why do we feel in a, in a medical institution that we have to ensure that somebody doesn't want to, doesn't say this or doesn't want to do this. Like, and if they say this, like we take away like all the things in their rooms, like we don't get them knives, we give them forks because they could stab themselves. Like it's a whole whole thing, you know? And it's like, yeah. And, and so, but if you, but I don't think a lot of people are able to step back and say like, just look around and like, what if, if you were in this situation, like, 
I feel like it's a valid statement to make. I don't know. I think, and I feel like it's okay for them to say it without us having to overreact about it too, or medicate it out of them, or you know. And it's just like because it is very. I think for a lot of people, it's very situational. Because if you if you if you are able to talk to somebody about it who is relatively cognitively intact to say it or to have that conversation and be able to recall why they said this, there is almost always a very valid reason as to why they said that. And you're, and you sit there and you just go, shit. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) yeah, I, I, I can't argue with that, you know? And, and so I don't know. I just, and I, and I know my view differs very, very differently from a lot of the people that I work with on a multitude of levels, but it's just, I don't, it's like one of those things as to like, why just because they're institutionalized, do we feel like we can control? But I mean, and I think, and I feel like one of the, it's like, I don't know. And not have compassion for why, they're feeling the way that they are. And I'm not saying that like, then we should just go ahead and like off them or allow them to take it into their own hands. (laughs) But, (laughs) but like, I guess maybe just have a different perspective (laughs) where like we can have more compassion in that setting to say that, like to not make them feel that what they're, how they're feeling and what they're saying is wrong or invalid and not justified because I think that's really what ultimately what we do because when you have five plus people flood into your room the second that this is said and it happens and all these things and then like what made you feel that way is because you have no rights and now more rights have been taken away from you like that's just like it's almost like that like finger pointing you can't do this you can't say that and now you're being punished for it and then that's just a slippery slope in a spiral. And I don't know. I don't know what the solution, I don't know if there is a solution, but I just feel like it's approached in a very poor way, not taking into consideration specifically, I guess, why this population of people feel the way that they feel. Because I know for damn sure, if you put me in that spot, I would be saying that shit on the daily. I'd be busting out of that place if I could, you know, like, and like Mia said, how many people say like, when you work in those types of places, you're like, God, I would never, oh, I would never want to be here. I would never put my parents here. I would never. A lot of people say that. And and then then people react and say, and then when they say something like that, that like, my life is terrible. We're like, no, it's not, but I would never want to be here. And I would never put my loved one here. (laughs) so it's like talking out of both sides of your mouth so like what you're not actually supporting what how you feel then you're just and you're and you're turning that on them to say no you shouldn't feel this way but doesn't it always come back to our perception as the living that death is bad Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Yeah. In in any sense mm-hmm. across all ages, 
like I think it's hard for us as living people to not or culturally maybe like 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 even even ancient cultures had a much more fluid view of of the spirit world and the underworld and the underworld not being a bad place it's it's a a place of beauty and darkness to recycle energy that turns it back to the light and everybody goes to the underworld and then that energy is recycled back to the light and and so like at any death at any point while it is painful for those of us who are here isn't it only painful for those couldn't it couldn't it be that it's only painful for those of us who are still living and then we look at it through that lens because we here feel lost we here feel left we here feel like a life was too short but who are we to decide that and also if you have like from my broader spiritual perspective mm -hmm regardless of when a life ends how do we decide whether it was too short or too long or too anything isn't that then not embodying divine timing in that that mm. soul has a purpose somewhere else like how do we like maybe i don't know you know what i mean like Maybe you're only only supposed to be here until you're 10. So then you can be reborn somewhere else to live out this other purpose or, you know, I don't know. I just, <clears throat> and I think that's where a lot of the fear aspect comes from. Cause it's this like fear of the unknown <clears throat> mm -hmm. because like, it's not like, like, yeah, we, we, I like, we can all sit here and say like, we've had these <laughs> past life readings that have been, you know, that, and you have these periods of remembering Mm -hmm. but it's not I don't think correct me if I'm wrong for those of you who are a little bit more in tune to this than I am at times but the, even the periods of remembering how tangible are they you know like there's it's it's like it's like uh snapshots right of a period of, of a remembering it's versus a, a whole if I sat here and thought about the past 35 years of my life, you know, it's not like it's, it's not just like <coughs> super tangible thing versus like a snapshot in time of like, Oh, this, Oh, this I remember. And I'm bringing it forth to now into this life versus like, I don't know. Does that make sense? <laughs> I understand what you're saying, but how are you relating that to this conversation? Exactly. Yeah. Past life remembrance is a snapshot. Yes. So you're saying that even if you believe in past lives, it's still scary. It still feels scary to lose this one because it won't be like you remember every. Right. 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 Because it's not like it's not like you're like, oh, OK, I like I remember that life from whenever. And it was a this thing. So I know that after this life that I'm currently in. There will be another one that will be, you know, and like, I will be able to look back on this, you know? And so like, I think it's just like, 
because it's not as a it's it's one of those things that it's just like having faith and believing in I guess whatever form of how you believe in it right and trusting in it versus it being something physically tangible that you can makes it easier I guess for our brains to conceptualize versus us just having this feeling or this knowing this intuition that Mm -hmm. it's not always bad or that there could that there's a reason for whatever happens I think too like in I don't really want to say new age spirituality because I don't consider myself that (laughs) I but so then maybe that's what I mean to say (laughs) older than dirt is where I come from um (laughs) in in new age spirituality we're seeing this resurgence of these beliefs of, of like trusting beyond physical evidence. But we only really talk about that. in like, you can make a million dollars sitting on your couch and you can manifest the life of your dreams and you can call hmm. the love of your life to you. If you trust and believe, if you trust and believe, if you trust and believe, but we don't like talk about like the dark underworld aspect of it in terms of trust and believe that whenever and like whoever leaves here, whenever they do is for a reason or is, is, is part of a bigger plan. And then because it's so, I think this, we talked about this yesterday and because it's so taboo, we can't even process the grief together. Like, like if there was a world where you could say, I don't want to be here anymore. Let's take this 23 year old girl, for example, to give it a little bit more tangible. So like, let's say her suicide gets approved. That's going to be a, a, a planned thing. So she can say all of the things that she's ever wanted to say. Her family can say like, it's a, a communal processing of grief and and acceptance that this is going to happen and this is her choice and doing that before someone passes versus someone leaving in what in unexpectedly and then all of the like <coughs> the the jarring shock piece of it and then the like what was wrong and why didn't I know what was wrong and the blame and the I don't know like it it still comes back to me for me to that like we're so like death is bad and wrong and scary and we don't ever want it to happen and then when it does happen it's hurtful and painful and something terrible and in my perfect world in my mind is there a way to to heal as a society from that viewpoint and create a different relationship with death and dying. So it doesn't feel that way or so that you can, everyone is emotionally intelligent enough to have those conversations. And I think then people who do need a conversation 
would be eliminated. You know what I mean? Then like, it's, it's like, it's like bringing mental health out into the open or, you know what I mean? Like, it's just having at like, if you could say that and everyone around you didn't jump into action and throw a social worker at you and get you residential treatment and, or, you know what, like it, it wasn't, I don't, I don't know. Like if it exactly. could be more of a normal conversation versus not normal, I guess, but like not. And I think like, I think suicide is always going to be the hardest part. And I think that young people is, are always going to be the hardest part. And I think trusting a, who we consider to be a child to make that decision is, is gonna, like that's, that is some heavy shit for us to work through. But if we look, if, if you start at, at the end of the at what we consider to be an appropriate end of life, 80 plus, we don't even allow those people to die and accept that. Even take out medically assisted suicide completely from the conversation. When someone in a nursing home is dying, their family isn't even called until the very, very end. It's tragic and everyone's crying and or avoiding or pacing. Like there's just, it's just like anxiety and overwhelm. So then you're dying in this fake environment, this institutional environment, and your family is bringing in all kinds of like fear energy and you're scared. And so it's like this horrific to me when I have been through it over and over and over again it's it feels horrific but it doesn't feel horrific when I have sat alone in a room with residents who don't have any family and held their hand and sang to them because that's what I do when I comfort people <laughs> no matter how many monitors around me at the nurse's station <laughs> I've forgotten that one too many times but it doesn't feel terrible to me. It feels like I can just send them love and tell them that they're safe and and hold their hand. And if they need to be made comfortable with, with medications that take the physical pain out of it and and just let them pass and tell them that it's okay and you don't have to stay here. I mean, there are people who by no, like it is, a, it is a, a, a medical miracle how long some of people can hold on to life. And like, we're talking no food, no water. Like they are just, I, we have, you have no clue how this person is staying there for weeks alive with no, like their body should have died by now, but they are holding on so tightly until one person calls or until one person shows up at their bedside and then they can let go. And I, I just, and then, and then how people feel if they can't fly in and be there when they die. And then there's all this guilt and there's all this whatever, because we only give you 24 hours notice. We're like, yeah, they've been dying for like a couple weeks now, but it seems real rough tonight. So I guess we're going to give the family a call. And it's just like this, but, but we put people in those places because death is scary and we don't want to look at it because you don't want grandma being half dead on your couch because that's uncomfortable to see. But if we could somehow begin to shift that relationship with death, where your loved ones were dying at home, where the, 
the there was counseling for the family members to work them. Like if you could, if you could just spend those last moments together with that person and love that person and celebrate their life and tell them that it's okay for them to leave versus them being scared and you being scared. And like, it's like this created, we, it's the fee, all of this fear around this leaving this lifetime that creates this trauma ripple every time someone passes and again i think we can get real fucking stuck when we get younger and you know what i mean all of the different things that we've talked about so far but in that in that space of just like being old and dying of natural relatively natural causes that's another episode um like if we began there to heal the relation that relationship with death, because I don't think that that has always been the case. I don't think we've always been afraid of death, and I don't think it's always been bad for elders to pass. But we've gotten into this place where we just don't even want to look at it. So it's all in an institution, and we go and visit them on mm-hmm. Christmas, and then um, we forget about them all the other times. Um, there is something to that, an, an, a unverbalized notion of we, we are pushing life hard the younger you are, like in your, in your late teens, early twenties is like push hard, push hard, life hard, life hard. Right. And then it's like, you get to the point of like retirement and then it's like, poof, gone. Those people don't matter anymore. And and then when you get to the end of life, it's like, oh, you kind of remember about them again. And then it's like, oh, but it's scary. We don't want to look at it because we're pushing hard on this, on all the young people, the new batch of people that we need to push, right? It's we, like we waste our time. Not I'm not saying we waste our time, but we disproportionately portion out our time in the beginning of our life than we do throughout our entire life evenly. I think that also adds oh, a, yeah. a layer of why death is so scary is because we don't even have time to think about that part. We're always just pushing right now, this moment, what are we doing? <clears throat> and if you're not going to produce, and it's like, then step aside. Mm-hmm. And it's like that concept that like, you don't even like you, you don't even have like the time to live. And so that's yep. why you're yep. scared of, you know, right? Because you haven't, because you get to a point and you see it with, I don't think so much uh, more elderly people who, it's, it's the con, the concept to me is a fascinating one, really, for the ability for me to walk into a room and say to somebody to give them their situation and tell them that this is what I think is maybe the best plan. This is where you're at. This is what I think. And for them to accept that so easily, more times than not in this type of setting, because they've prepared themselves for that. And they know in and so they are very easily able to say, I know, yeah, yeah, I want, I just, just let me be, 
keep me comfortable. I'm accepting of this. And so then you go slightly like earlier into the uh, age bracket of like below 80, more of your middle-aged kind of 50 to 70 age range. And you take that same situation and the thought process is like, it's a very different one of what, what did I do to deserve this? What did I, what I've, I have, what have I not done? Who have I not talked to recently? All these like questions and more guilt that they've put on themselves or other people, or it's a very, you know, like the, the thought process behind it is very different. And I know a lot of that comes with, with age because it's like, you get to a point in your life where you realize that this is where you're at and that's okay. And you can reconcile with that versus like just slightly before that, it's a very different thing. And so you carry this guilt and these what ifs and I didn't do this and I should have done this and all of that. And so that's that fear aspect that goes into it versus just acceptance. And I think that goes into Alex, what you were saying is like, we, we were pushed, 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 pushed to do, 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 do. And we never actually get to fucking live. And so we get to this point where we have all these regrets because we never did what we actually wanted to do. And we never were able to experience the things that we wanted to, because we live in a capitalistic society where we're not able to do that. And so you get to the point where you retire and you're like, Now what? And the other fascinating concept too of like how many people do you see who work in corporate America retire? And then within a year of that retirement, they they die. They get they they get cancer. They get very sick. Like it's just all of a sudden, like, bam. And you're like, what the fuck? And it happens way more than you think it does. And So it's like, it goes back to like all of this societal restructuring of like, how do we have that balance of where we can actually live? So when we get to the point at whatever time period that that is, that it's not so fear driven and we can accept it and know that this was just the timing and how it was planned or whatever, instead of being mad and angry and regretful for what we couldn't do or the situation that we were put in. I think there's a really good topic on this. I'd be interested to see if like any of this kind of information has changed, but at least when I was in school, we did a whole section on death and dying. Like that was like a specific class that we had to take for the degree, one of them that I ended up getting. And I think it was probably around, hmm, I think it was around like World War II. You know, a lot of the men are off at war. Women are at home taking care of the home and things like that as they were normally. But then you saw a major shift in the way that society thought about caregiving, home life, things like that, because people wanted women out in the workforce 
you know, working because the men weren't there. And I think that's right around the time period when you notice the shift from acceptance and celebration for end of life and fear. And that's like kind of like that indoctrination point where you can actually trace it back in history. And that's like the point when it changed because, and you see it a lot in like, especially Hispanic cultures, myself personally, um, but you know, other just different cultures, like uh, I know a lot of Asian cultures are the same way as well, but where you see a lot of times if they have the means and a lot of time, even if people don't have the means, they're elderly or at home. They're taking care of them at home. They don't send them to institutional places to go die. They're, they're there at home. And the biggest piece and biggest aspect is like everybody from the smallest person in the home to the oldest person next to this person that's, you know, passing on, they're there. They're interacting with them. They're watching them die. And it's not this fear thing. It's not based in fear. It's not rooted in fear. It's viewed and seen as a beautiful thing. It's a time for that person that's passing on to provide wisdom to everybody else, to, you know, share traditions, to share stories, to share memories. And that entire thing for everybody is totally different, completely and totally different from this fear-based, you know, just end of life where it's like, holy shit, like I'm going to die and I'm terrified. And so instead of, you know, it being a terrible, terrifying thing for the person that is going to die, it's, it's beautiful for them because on their, like in that mindset, like they can share all of this wisdom and knowledge with their family and it's the exact same for the family. So, you know, I think it's, I'll just put my tinfoil hat on. I mean, there's, there's a reason why we view it in this fear-based lens. So for what that's worth, I mean, I, I do think that that's yeah. really important. And I think if we're going to like change the conversation around this, we're going to go back to what, like the way that it was, in my opinion, the way that it should be, that's, that's some heavy work that we got to do there. But I think it, it probably looks like very much the same as like we in this call have been doing with like traditions and cultural traditions and things like that, bringing those back and talking about them. And like for us with our parents, if we have the means and we're able to like taking care of them and end of life instead of shipping them off to institutions and like, okay, go die. Mm -hmm. Like that, Mm -hmm. it starts with us, I guess is my point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's hard because it's just like societally you're not, it's like, it's, it's, we've been, it, it's, it's people either just don't have the money or they physically can't because they have to work or, you know, and they can't be home. And so it's just, it's a lot of, it's a lot of things that have shifted in that, but it's really interesting that you say like that, that, that fear aspect in these certain cultures and stuff where they're even from the youngest age where kids are watching grandparents or great grandparents pass and how that much different that is for us because the amount of family that I've seen freaking out because somebody is breathing a certain way or making a certain sound and oh my god what is that and I don't are they does that mean they're this does that and they're and no they don't have a clue and these people are well beyond my age but the only way that I'm able to guide them through that and tell them is because I've seen this hundreds of times And so you can comfort them in that period, but like, that's, 
like, you're totally right, Lexi. Like that's that shift that has to be made that like, and even like that, like that it's okay to be present in that moment and watch this happen and not be scared about it. And I think a lot of that just comes in like simply educating people that, you know, and, and like personally for me, I try to really prepare people for like, this is what you're going to see. This is what can happen. This is, this is that, this is that. And so they expect it. And this does not mean that they're suffering. It's just because this is a normal process of the whole thing. And I don't think there's a lot of that and people don't. And it's, so it's very hard to conceptualize. And like, even with my experience with that to the point where like my own grandfather, who I was close to when he died, I was one of the only grandchildren out of many and family members who respectfully declined to not go to the hospital and see him in his last moments because I was very familiar as to what that looked like and what that experience was. And I didn't, I was okay not being part of that. And I, and I carried that guilt with me for a very long time as well, making that decision. I was confident in it, but I was carried that with me for well over two years in feeling that I made the wrong decision. But, and so I guess the more you experience it. So if you're able to, so if we, if we change the culture behind it, where you're experiencing this stuff from a young age and you're familiar with it. So it makes the experience of it easier, as easy as it can be. It makes the conversations around it easier, which none of us want to have. Like everybody says that like at Thanksgiving and Christmas, this is when you should be having your conversations about what your advanced directive should be because everybody's together. And really that's true, but nobody actually does that because like, except us, like except people who are like used to it, but like angels of death. But nobody wants to do that (laughs) because like for a long time, I felt like if I had that conversation, I was like putting a bad omen on myself. Like if I talk about this, that means this is going to happen to me tomorrow. Like that's not true. I mean, we don't know, but, and so like, it's, it's, it's just changing the whole dynamic of the entire thing and being able to be okay with having the conversations and even there and that going back into being able to feel safe enough to have those conversations, even back onto the topic of suicide, that if you are feeling a certain way that you are comfortable enough to go to people, if you have the people to, to seek out, to say, this is how I'm feeling and not feel like you're going to have that judgment put on you. Because I think a lot of people, when they say certain things like that, of this is how I'm feeling. And I would rather just be I would rather just die and I feel hopeless and that like like you're going to save it right but a lot and a lot of people will say listening well what do you have what why is your life so bad that you feel that way and so then automatically you're like oh my god what like I don't know why and so that's the I think another shift on that part that needs to take place is like just like Lexi said listening and not projecting your feelings onto it or reacting in a way that then makes that person think that there's something wrong with them because of the way that they're feeling. Because yeah, until you felt that fix. Right. And until you've felt that way yourself, you cannot fathom 
what that feels like. And so I, it, so if you've never felt that way yourself, then I, you definitely shouldn't be trying to, to be the savior fix type person and really just listen. And so how do we shift that whole dynamic around all of this to just make it more of a normalized thing where it's less fear-based and more just rooted in, I guess, back to that love and compassion piece where it's okay to feel a certain way and say certain things. Mm-hmm. I remember way back before I met all of you guys, um, I, I felt there was, I, I, I wouldn't say that I had, was going to ever do anything like this, but it had moments where it was the first time I ever thought to myself, um, sorry, my brother just walked in. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, <laughs> I would wake up many days. It was like during the beginning of the pandemic. And I'm like, what am I doing here? Like completely blank, blank statement in my head. Like today's another day in the neighborhood. What am I doing here? Does this even matter? Like if I was gone and I would, I remember replaying in myself, why did I just say that to myself? And it scared me that I had those thoughts and felt those things and felt completely blank about all these pieces like I was just like whoa where why do I what I never thought in a million years I'd ever say that to myself but here I am doing it here I am saying it to myself there's got to be something wrong with me me personally it's like that's when I started seeking what is it that I'm missing that I'm not that I don't feel right now and I know that that's not everybody feels that way or, or can or starts like trying to self-analyze their thought, their thought process. But for me, it was quite shocking that I never thought that that was something I'd utter to myself. And here I am uttering it to myself and I'm like, Oh shit. Oh, this is happening. What if I keep, what if I keep going down this route? What is What does that mean? Like, would I actually get to that point where I'm going to do something like this? I don't, I don't know. And for me, the turning point was going back towards, uh, I felt, I guess a part of it was for me, I always had some spirituality in my life. And that was when I was like, Oh gosh, I ha- maybe I have to go back and like revisit all of that or get closer to that because maybe that's what's missing. Um, and so for me, seeking out other people who talk about things that I never heard anybody talk about, except for myself in my head <laughs> was my turning point. Um, and I haven't had thoughts like that since, but there was a good point where I had mentioned it maybe once to my husband and I was like, I, I'm waking up and saying these things to myself. Is that weird? And he's like, uh, are you okay? Do you need to, like, he was like very concerned, but I myself was like, you know, trying to understand what it, what it was. Um, so I wonder if seeing something larger than yourself plays uh, a role in all of this in some manner as well. Cause I don't know me thinking back, I felt like that was a piece that I had missed that did end up changing my perspective again. And I think, I think that that is like, I think that's 
probably a perfect place to kind of stop this discussion because I think it then it leads nicely into our next piece (laughs) to our next piece, which was our potential other topic for this week, because I think that the removal of spirituality from the individual and the placement of a monotheistic God at the top of a hierarchical organized religion is what takes that away from you and Mm -hmm. makes you feel that distance and that disconnect, which is kind of what we Mm -hmm. want to talk about next time for probably speaking from personal experience. I would agree. So yeah, it's a good spot. 